This morning we're in Exodus chapter 23. I'd invite you to open your Bibles or to navigate on your device to Exodus 23. We're going to put in at verse 20 and read through verse 33. The topic, God promises Israel to send his angel ahead of them into battle against their enemies. The title of our message, Angel in the Battlefield. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, as usual, we're going to read about the nation of Israel. We're going to further that story and understand their approach to the promised land. And while that's exciting and interesting and informative, we, we want to see ourselves in this text as well. And so I pray that you would help us to do that by the teaching of your Holy Spirit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It is perhaps the worst miscasting in a feature film of all time. Who do you think it was and in what film? I'd like you to hold that thought to yourself for a minute. Casting is so important. Every now and then someone publishes a list of actors who were almost cast in iconic roles instead of those who were. We can't imagine anyone other than Harrison Ford as Han Solo in the original Star Wars trilogy, but they almost cast Al Pacino. Now, we can't imagine anyone other than Al Pacino as Michael Corleone in the Godfather trilogy, but they almost cast Jack Nicholson. Forrest Gump was brought to the screen by Tom Hanks instead of John Travolta. I don't know what I think about that. Although John Travolta is a great actor in his own right, is there anything better than Greece? Yes. <laughs> Who was the worst actual miscast of all time? No, it wasn't George Clooney as Batman, although he thinks it was. Remember in an interview one time they said, some people told me I played Batman, but I don't remember it. Anyway, the worst casting was John Wayne as Genghis Khan in a movie called The Conqueror. The film was a critical flop. It often ranked as one of the worst films of the 1950s and one of the worst films ever. The Conqueror was listed in the 1978 book, 50 Worst Films of All Time. John Wayne was posthumously named a winner of a Golden Turkey Award for his performance in the film. Just imagine John Wayne with spray tan and <laughs> trying to look like Genghis Khan. On top of that, this is, this, and this is sad, 11 above-ground nuclear weapons tests occurred on the location where the movie was filmed. The cast and crew spent many weeks at the site, and the producers later shipped 60 tons of dirt back to Hollywood so that the reshoots would have an authentic feel. The filmmakers knew about the nuke test, but the government assured them the test caused no hazard to public health, just like they always do. The cast and crew totaled 220 people. By the end of 1980, 91 of them had developed cancer, and 46 had died from cancer. So I, I, I know they... Uh, they want to deny the link, but if you get a chance to buy dirt from Utah, don't do it. <laughs> Turning to our text in Exodus, the Israelites were perfectly cast as conquerors of the promised land. God said to them, verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I'll send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. Israel's mandate go into the land and completely conquer its inhabitants. We can learn from their example as conquerors for sure, but our mandate as Christians is very different. 
We do not eliminate our enemies. We dwell among them. We are called upon to live in the midst of a fallen evil world surrounded by supernatural powers of darkness. Jesus prayed to the Father about us, and this is what he asked him to do. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. In this world, we are not taken out of, surrounded by enemies like the evil one. We are described by the Apostle Paul not as conquerors, but he says we are more than conquerors. We often want to be conquerors when, in fact, we are more than conquerors. What do I mean? Let me use illness as an example. We want to conquer illness through prayer and fasting and faith and seeking God. Our Father still heals, and there's nothing wrong with seeking Him for the conquering of illness. A more than conqueror is someone who, like the Apostle Paul, who coined the term, can accept God's no and experience grace to sufficient to glory in it. Conquering is easy in one sense. God can easily immediately overcome all our pains and problems. More than conquering, that's real work. That's spiritual work that readies us to see the Lord who himself suffered and died that we might live. It will help to remember this basic worldview, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are more than a conqueror in the place Jesus has uh, prepared. And number two, you are more than a conqueror against the powers Jesus has permitted. Let's take a look at preparation first in verses 20 through 24. God is a prepper. Now, I don't mean in the survivalist sense we use it today. I mean that he is always at work preparing things for us. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus promised us. You read its description in the last chapters of the Revelation. It's our mansions in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Meanwhile, we read in Ephesians that God has good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, in verse 20, the Lord tells Israel he has prepared the promised land for them. Seeing the kind of prepping the Lord did for them will broaden our understanding of his prepping in our lives. And so let's get into it. Verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now, this angel, we've seen him before. He's none other than the Old Testament appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus in a pre-incarnation appearance. We're confident it's the Lord and not just a mighty angel because in the book of Joshua, you see this person described as captain of the Lord's host and Joshua bows to worship him, something that no angel would receive. We all have a favorite far side cartoon. Mine is the one in which God was a contestant on Jeopardy. He was the only one with any score and he had a gazillion dollars heading into final Jeopardy. That's because answering questions on Jeopardy is an easy win for God. With the angel of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's host, with Jesus fighting for you, it was an easy win, or at least it was a guaranteed win. We have the Lord with us in a much greater sense. True, he's departed and in heaven, but he said that it was a good thing that he left because now we each have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We can have a confidence that whatever the Lord has told us is possible, he will guarantee it in his power. Now, the angel would keep Israel in the way. The place he had prepared must be approached along the way he had ordained. 
You're familiar with the book of Joshua and the many odd strategies that God had for them to employ to take down the people that lived in that land. And they, they had to do what God wanted them to do in order to see his victory. We need reminding that it is the narrow way, the way of separation from the things of the world that we are to walk in. We are in the world by God's design. We are not to become of the world by the world's deception. Verse 21, beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, this doesn't mean their transgressions could not be forgiven, but that they would have consequences. Part of God's covenant with Israel was conditional on obedience. I said they were guaranteed a win, but only if they obeyed him and followed the way he prescribed. Case in point, they obey him to the letter when they take the city of Jericho. The next city on the docket is Ai, and God has a particular strategy there where he says to destroy everything and don't take anything. One of the guys defies that, and he steals from Ai, and they are defeated in their strategy. And so uh, they were defeated until they dealt with all those who had sinned. They received a new strategy from the Lord, followed it, and then they were victorious. And so verse 22, but if indeed you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. This is a tremendous promise, but did you catch what he said? there would be enemies and adversaries in the land. God had prepared the land for them by allowing enemies and adversaries to remain in it. They were headed into battle. Now, our ideas about preparation must be very different than God's. I'm thinking he should have already driven out their enemies so that they could walk right in and start farming. Instead, verses 23 and 24 describe what was waiting for them. I couldn't really think of a great example, but imagine you bought a house. Many of you have been through this process. Uh, you know, you buy a house, it closes escrow, the realtor gives you the keys, said everything is prepared for you to move in. You go to the house, and the old family that you bought the house from is still living there. They're confined to the back bedroom. They say, well, we're almost out. You'd say to your realtor, things aren't ready. It isn't prepared, to which they would say, no, you have to drive them out. No, but it's, it's absurd. And so if God says to the Israelites, I'm going to prepare the land for you, I'm thinking the first crops are already in, they're, just, they're ready to go. And he said, and, and I'm going to prepare it for you by leaving several pagan tribes and nations for you to battle against. So right away, we have an idea that God's idea of preparation, very different than ours. Then he says in verse 23, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites the Hivites and the Jebusites, we always used to add the outasites and people would laugh, but now I have to say that because nobody laughs. And, I, and then they laugh, see? It's, you have to tell a joke. You have to new, think of different ways of telling the same stale jokes. Uh, and he says, I will cut them off. Now, these nations were to be conquered. Let me deal quickly with the complaint that God was cruel in ordering the destruction of these people. Maybe somebody said that to you or you've encountered it in reading uh, where people say, well, God destroyed whole nations, you know, men, women, children, and animals. Uh, what's up with that? Well, first of all, you need to understand how incredibly wicked these people were. They cast their infants, for example, into the fire to worship their gods. I mean, these are people who are 
they don't just have a different opinion than you politically. Uh, you know, they are absolutely wicked to the core, and there's uh, just something malevolent running through their society. And then there's something else, though, that we must factor in, and it's put well by this quote I ran across. This author said, it is contrary to the spirit of the law and to the facts bearing on the subject scattered in the history to suppose that any obstacle was put in the way of well-disposed individuals of the denounced nations who left their sins and were willing to join the service of God. The spiritual blessings of the covenant were always open to those who sincerely and earnestly desired to possess them. In other words, even though God said that they were to wipe out these nations, anyone in those nations who wanted to repent and convert to Judaism was welcomed in. And there are cases of that in the book of Joshua and later on in Judges. And so they were to be wiped out with the opportunity beforehand to repent and come to the Lord. We see examples of that. It wasn't that they could not repent. It was that most of them would not repent. So verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. The angel of the Lord would overcome these nations. All the Israelites had to do was not bow down to their gods but instead utterly destroy their places and objects of worship. I was reminded of when I first got saved and the quote from the Bible that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, I've told you before that the Lord immediately took away uh, drunkenness from me and I no longer had any desire to drink alcohol. It wasn't that I thought I couldn't or that I wanted to be more holy or you know, anything like that. It's just I had no desire to. Instead, I, I felt like it was great to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God delivered me in his power. All I needed to do was not be drawn back into drunkenness. Uh, that, that was my part. And so it causes me to wonder, is there something in my life or your life that the Lord has conquered, but you have now returned to it? Over time, walking with the Lord, we are definitely prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, are we not? And so it's a good heart check every now and then. Uh, the Israelites, we read their story and we think, why are they going back to these things, these pagan things, these idolatrous things? And it's a, it's a warning and an example for us as well. Now, in the world, Jesus asked his father to not remove you from, there remain serious enemies, Satan, sin, death, and the grave. Our enemies were all conquered at the cross when Jesus said in a loud voice, it is finished. Satan and his malevolent followers were defeated. Colossians 2.15 proclaims, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Sin was conquered. For example, in Romans 6, we read, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer parts of your bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And so sin has been conquered unless we yield ourselves to it. And then finally, death and the grave. They are no longer enemies. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We have only to appropriate the conquest of the cross by resisting the devil, 
and refusing to yield ourselves to sin. As for death and its aftermath, the grave, I told you earlier to have this mindset, to live is Christ and to die is gain. A person that understands that they're living for Christ and when they die, they gain eternal life, that they are absent from their body and present with the Lord has defeated death and the grave. As we wait for him, the Lord encourages us to discover good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prearranged that we can bring forth good works as we encounter and engage our defeated enemies. We normally think of good works as feeding the poor, taking care of widows. Those are good works, but something else is in view here, a different type of good work. The example I'd give is the Apostle Paul. You remember he encountered something he called the thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan, and he said it buffeted him. Uh, it, commentators are all over the map in terms of exactly who or what that was. But I think in general, you get the idea that it's serious. If you came up to me this morning and say, hey, Gene, how you doing? I said, well, actually, I had the messenger of Satan has beaten me up, and I've got this huge thorn in my flesh. You'd say, oh, wow, that sounds great. No, I mean, you'd think, man, that's serious. Is there something we can do? And so Paul had this thing going on, and he repeatedly prayed for healing and deliverance. He believed that God healed and could deliver him, and he repeatedly prayed for it. God said emphatically, no. God said more than no. He said this, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul responded, therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in my infirmities, in my reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul wanted God to conquer his thorn in the flesh, and there's nothing wrong with that. And God is able to do that. And so he, he said, God, I want you to conquer this. Take it away from me. I'm going to keep praying about it until you tell me otherwise. Then God answered no, and Paul became more than conqueror by letting grace be sufficient for him. And that's what we're looking at this morning, conquering versus more than conquering. Many of you have gone through or you're going through something in which you are asked to be more than conqueror. If not, you will have experiences like that because that's what it means to walk with a suffering Savior. With the empowering of the Spirit who lives in you, bring forth the good works of a believer trusting in his or her Savior. Let his grace fill your heart and life. We'll talk more about grace in just a minute. Verses 25 through 33, let's look at the powers Jesus has permitted. If victory was guaranteed, why fight? Well, as it turns out, fighting was necessary for a few very important reasons. So in verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. Bread and water, basic staples for living. We read that. My first read of that is, well, that's what you give criminals, you know, basic bread and water. How is that a promise? And then I realized God is saying, even your bread and your water are going to be fantastic in the promised land. Your bread is going to be King's Hawaiian bread or whatever bread turns you on. Those of you who are on a diet that restricts you from eating bread, I fear for you. And I feel for you. I pray for you. And if you've got some bread at home you don't want, bring it to me. But anyway, <laughs> there's some great bread. And then there's just garlic bread, which is garlic on any kind of bread uh, that you can imagine in copious amounts. How about water? Water's so refreshing, is it not? 
great to have a big draft of water. And then you realize that around the world, there are literally thousands of bottled waters, hundreds some or dozens in each country. And some from natural uh, springs that are uh, naturally sparkling water. Uh, San Pellegrino, for example, is a naturally occurring sparkling Italian water, one of my favorites. But my all-time favorite right now, how many of you have drank Topo Chico? Raise your hand. Gene and I. You are missing it. If you like mineral water, and you should, uh, you need to get some Topo Chico. If you go to a store that doesn't sell it, you need to go to a different store and a pox beyond that store. But anyway, you can get it. You can get it at Walmart. Stop it now. And uh, you can get it at the dollar store. It's... <laughs> Which is only because people don't understand its, its joy. I mean, it's the greatest. If you like sparkling water, you're going to love Topo Chico. That's all I'm going to say. So. so God is saying, man, when you go into the promised land, I'm, just not, I'm not just talking water. I'm talking Pellegrino, I'm talking, you know, Topo Chico. It's going to be fantastically refreshing while you eat garlic bread on the side. And so that's the idea here. There'd be no sickness. Now remember, this is a promise to Israel in their mandate to drive out enemies. Our mandate is to live among our enemies. We are most definitely not promised health and wealth. The Apostle Paul not only had a thorn in his flesh, but he listed many infirmities that he could have. And so we are just, it's, it's apples and oranges. We can learn from Israel. We are not Israel. The church is not Israel. And this is a, a big proof as to, you know, why we're not. We have a different mandate entirely. We're not, are we about, are we busy destroying our enemies? Are we at war with our enemies, driving them out of wherever we think the promised land is? No. We're living in the midst of them in the power of the gospel. Very, very different stuff. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in all your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now, this has to do with God's promise, his unconditional promise to Abraham that he would multiply his descendants to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beaches. And again, remember, a lot of these are conditional promises based on their obedience. Verse 27 I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. God would employ a number of odd strategies in their conquering the promised land, including fear. When Israel crossed the Jordan, we read in chapter 5, verse 1 of Joshua, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, their heart melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. And so fear was a, a very powerful weapon. These people had noted God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt, for example. We read that. We studied that. God decimated Egypt and its crops and its animals and its firstborn and then its army. And this is what was coming your way across the Jordan River. Egypt was arguably more powerful than all of these nations combined. And so, of course, they were afraid. And so God used fear, and he used hornets. Verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. As always, there's a lot of speculation on what is meant by hornets, including that God sent hornets, and he might have. I, I don't know. It's, it's possible. 
I rather think it's a way of summarizing the effect of all the strategies God would employ, whether it was drying up a Jordan River or marching around the walls of Jericho or causing the sun to stand still in the sky while Israel defeated her enemies on the battlefield. It was like sending swarms of hornets in its effect. Um, you ever been attacked by a swarm of bees or a swarm of hornets? Uh, it, I haven't, but I've had one bee or one hornet in my car <laughs> while I'm driving, and even though it's not bothering me, I want to crash into a telephone pole <laughs> and get out of there, and, you know, because it's, it's just terrifying. I remember one day I was, I was trimming with the electric trimmer, and I trimmed right into a hornet's nest, and one of them, uh, wasp nest, I guess, one of them bit me, and I, ah, and I threw the thing. Pam come running out. She thought I'd cut my arm off with the trimmer. It's not like I didn't, you know, do stuff like that, but usually the extension cord. P those pesky extension cords, they always get in the way of the blades. But anyway, <laughs> but, uh, man, you know, so <laughs> hornets, if you're being changed, so the idea is that no matter what you're doing, if all of a sudden a, a, a swarm of hornets attacks you, you're going to take tail and run, right? Turn tail and run, jump into the earliest water source you can find. And so I just think it's a, it's a summary of saying, it, you know, it's like God sending hornets. Whatever he decides to do, he's going to drive the enemy away. And then he says in verse 29, I'll not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. The conquest would take more than a year. In fact, it would take about seven years for Joshua to uh, cut through the nation uh, or through the land and separate the nation so that they had strategic control of the promised land and then could go into mop-up operations. Now, I'm positive the average Israelite would have preferred that God drive out their enemies without any fighting, but that would have been impractical in many ways, certainly regarding the land reverting to being too wild. He said, why? Well, if I drive out all the people immediately, by the time you get to some of your inheritance, it's going to be overrun with wild beasts that you're going to have to deal with. Here's something interesting. 30 years after reactor number four exploded in a pillar of radioactive smoke, the abandoned wasteland around Chernobyl uh, is one of the most important habitats for scientists studying native wildlife. Within 10 days of the accident... Almost the entire population of 120,000 people had been evacuated from a 30-kilometer exclusion zone around the plant. When humans were off the scene, wild animal and bird species roamed what is effectively one of Europe's biggest unintentional wildlife reserves. Wild boar, wolves, elk, and deer in particular have thrived in the forest and grassland landscape. I know a lot of you are on the Internet right now seeing if they sell permits for hunting, but they don't. The zone, as it is popularly known, has become an improbable sanctuary for more elusive fauna, including lynx, endangered European bison who wandered across the border from Belarus, and a growing population of a kind of horse. I'm going to try and pronounce it this service. Przewalski's horses, a wild equine released in the area in the 1990s. It's an extremely rare breed doing so well in the area that herds are beginning to stray from beyond the zone. And so left to itself, even a place like Chernobyl is now overrun with wildlife. And so God says, hey, just on a practical level, if I drive everybody out, you're going to have wildlife problems. In another place in the Bible, God tells them that he left enemies in the land so that Israelites would grow in their skills and abilities as warriors so that they would learn how to fight. All in all, God's plan to put them into battle was faith building. Little by little, verse 30, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. 
So God had a solid strategy for occupation. It would take time, but victory was assured. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. It's an ambitious plan, but very doable for a people who would obey the Lord and who had the Lord leading them in battle. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Israel had to be all in. These nations must be destroyed, save for any who repented and believed in the Lord. The Israelites were not to deviate at all from God's plan by merely subjugating the people, entering into treaties with them. That would keep their gods in power, and that would ruin Israel. Now, we've got to realize that these gods are genuine supernatural entities. They're represented by idols of wood and stone, but they were not the mere imaginings of a primitive people. These people were ancient, but they weren't stupid. I'm always amazed at how advanced the thinking is of some of these ancient peoples in the areas of mathematics and astrology and even science with no real instruments or implements like we have. I think it's true that kids don't have to memorize the periodic chart of the elements anymore. Is that, is, remember the periodic chart? Anybody have to memorize that, know all the elements? You don't need to do that anymore because you got the internet. You could look it up. I don't know if we're smarter or stupider <laughs> as a result of that. But the truth is, these people weren't ignorant. They understood that the stone itself wasn't powerful. They knew there was power behind these idols. Case in point, just a little while ago, when, the, uh, when Moses came to the court of Pharaoh, Moses was doing all kinds of great things, promising all kinds of great things, and Pharaoh said, hey, I got a couple of guys I'd like you to meet. He called for his magicians. In the New Testament, they're called Janus and Jambres. And he says, guys, let's have a, a wizard's contest, as it were, between you and Moses. And they could do some stuff. They could make their staffs turn into snakes. It wasn't sleight of hand. It wasn't through smoke and mirrors. It wasn't pen and teller stuff. They could make their staffs turn into snakes. Moses' staff turned into a bigger snake and ate their staff. That was kind of embarrassing, you know, in terms of a power struggle. But there was a few other things they could do. They had genuine supernatural abilities. And so when God says, I don't want you to mess with the gods of these people, he's not talking about, I mean, here in the United States, we always think, oh, yeah, idols are like cars, and they're like people that I like too much, and clothing, and, you know, anything can be an idol. And for sure, that's true. It can take the place of God in your life. But when we talk about gods as idols, we're talking about real supernatural power. And so God says, yeah, you can't have any of that. I won't coexist with these little G gods, and they will destroy you. And so be very careful about that. Demands for exorcism in the Catholic Church are on the rise. I don't know if you knew that or not. Earlier this year, more than 200 priests from around the world traveled to Rome for an annual Vatican training course on how to perform exorcisms, the ritual used by the Catholic Church to free people who are believed to be possessed by demons. I think they watch the exorcist movies. No, I'm just kidding. We should not be surprised. The Apostle Paul described principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so those are things that exist right now. 
Peter told us to resist the devil, indicating he would be on the attack like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. The passage in which Paul glories that we are more than conquerors, the whole passage reads like this. It's from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come, not height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's quite a list of perils and pains and problems and pitfalls. To be more than conqueror, you're going to have to experience some of them. Those are the things that we more than conquer, and that means we have to experience them. William MacDonald shares this commentary about being more than conquerors. He says, instead of separating us from Christ's love, these things only succeed in drawing us closer to him. We are not only conquerors, we're more than conquerors. It's not simply that we triumph over these forces, but that in doing so, we bring glory to God, blessing to others, good to ourselves. We make slaves out of our enemies. All that sounds so glorious on paper until it's me who is in pain or peril. But if I remember that to live is Christ and to die is gain, God's grace is sufficient. We're always saying that. It's one of my favorite things is to say that God's grace is sufficient. That word sufficient, described in Strong's Concordance this way, James Strong says the idea is raising a barrier to ward off. It isn't that you're promised just barely enough grace to hang on to your faith, you're guaranteed grace that acts as a barrier warding off the things that assail you. They cannot touch you spiritually is what it means, even though they may ruin you physically. They can't separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not death, not life, uh, not disease, not any of the things can do that because God's grace is a barrier to them. Your outward man is always perishing. Your inward man being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Sufficient grace also preaches to others watching you. To see you basking in the love of Jesus in the midst of such pain puts heaven into perspective. Who doesn't have an understanding of someone who suffered something terrible and tragic uh, only to be filled with an abundance of the grace of God in a sense that it ministered to you and preached to you and you saw a live example of the fact that to die is gain because this person is thinking only of eternity and will soon be there. Sin, uh, Satan, sin, death, and the grave, they're defeated. While we patiently wait for Jesus to resurrect the dead believers of the church age and rapture those of us who are alive, these enemies are permitted to operate on the earth. They are powers that God permits to operate on the earth. The time in which a believer lives determines our casting. Israel was cast as conquerors, empowered to drive out enemies. We are cast as more than conquerors, empowered to dwell in victory in the midst of enemies. I don't know if this totally makes sense to you at this point, but it will when you're in some intense suffering. Don't get bogged down trying to be a conqueror when God has called you to be more than conqueror. Do you understand? If we only focus on the conquering, 
the deliverance from, the healing from, the, the change of situation, whatever it might be, we're going to be depressed, we're going to be discouraged, we're going to be downtrodden, we're, we're not going to get it. But if we understand that God might be saying no, then we move into what we are mandated to be, and that is more than conquerors who say, well, yeah, none of this can touch the love of Jesus Christ for me. I can't be separated from that. Something so minor as this, when after all, to be absent from my body is to be present with the Lord. One Christian author wrote, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. I'll close with the lyrics of a hymn written by Henry Francis Light. He said, I fear no foe with you at hand to bless, though ills have weight and tears their bitterness. Where is death staying? Where grave is your victory? I triumph still since you abide with me. Let's pray.